Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. As usual, I try to find uh, unique, interesting, and uh, really, really high-end people in their field. So today, uh, I have Joao Marquez. He's an associate professor at the Universidad Federal de Minas Gerais. Um, We're going to be talking about uh, the virome and... uh, wild pox viruses and viruses in general. So, Joao, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Yeah, if you would, uh, can you tell me a little bit about your, your work? What, uh, what got you interested in viruses and what are you working on now? So, well, uh, I got interested in viruses because uh, you know, they're really fascinating. Uh, I don't even know if I can call them creatures, or, you know, because they are on the borderline of what's a living organism and what's not. But yet they are able to cause, you know, massive uh, uh, pandemics like what we're having now with coronavirus. Mm. So it's really fascinating how such, you know, just small little things can really take over a whole organism like a human being or, you know, a whale or an elephant or a bacteria, for example. So this really got me interested in understanding these basics of uh, uh, virus-host interactions. So what... um... What particular viruses are you studying and in what context? So I, I, uh, as you mentioned, I worked uh, during my PhD with pox viruses, mostly some pox viruses that were isolated uh, from the Brazilian uh, tropical forest. Um, And from there, I got really interested in how viruses can really escape the immune system. And this made me migrate into a little bit more of understanding of antiviral immunity rather than the virus itself. So how the host can recognize virus infection. And uh, this uh, brought me to uh, start working with insects. And insects are very interesting because they are the most diverse group of uh, multicellular organisms. They represent over 70% of all the animal species. So they really... If you want to work with animal immunity, really, you should work with insects because they represent most of animal immunity. And by working with insects, I uh, started uh, studying the mechanism of RNA interference, which is a very important uh, antiviral response for most animals. Um, It's still debatable if it's important for uh, mammals, but it's certainly uh, the most prevalent immune response if we look at uh, animals as a whole. And okay, so one, one question, one question here. So the big yeah. concept here is that, and I don't know if this is the case, are viruses able to evade our immune system functions uh, initially or after they've been inside us and replicated? But in general, are they able to avoid, you know, an animal's uh, immune defenses? Well, uh, it depends on the virus, right? Uh, some viruses are really good at completely evading the immune system. They use very different uh, strategies. Uh, for example, we could talk about HIV. So HIV is a, a very good example because it really targets the major 
cell of the mammalian immune, st immune system, the, the human immune system more specifically, which are uh, uh, T lymphocytes, TCD4 positive lymphocytes. And without these cells, our immune system cannot function properly. So basically these people become immunodeficient and the virus can stay forever within these people. Um, some other viruses have more of an acute uh, uh, type of uh, infection. So they are able to proliferate to um, high levels. Uh, they don't completely evade the immune response. They are eventually controlled, but by proliferating very rapidly uh, and evading the initial immune response, they are able to tra be transmitted to other hosts. So they are not eliminated because they jump from host to host. Um, so how does, um, how does a normal uh, immune system or a CD4 cell deal with a virus? You know, even if they, uh, like, if they, for HIV, what do you imagine or what do we know happens when the virus first gets inside someone? It's supposed to be in a dormant state. It's a virion, but what do you think that first interaction looks like or a normal, you know, proper immune response reaction looks like initially? Yeah, so for most viruses, uh, uh, you know, including HIV, uh, uh, the, the first response is really mediated by the innate immune system. So it does not require lymphocytes. So basically, the first response that uh, an organism has to a virus is really cell intrinsic. So it's the first cell that's infected by the first virus has to know it's infected. And this is the same principle that applies all the way from bacteria, uh, single cell bacteria to multicellular complex organisms such as plants and higher plants and, and, and mammals. So the first cell has to really recognize the infection and then signal to others. And, and, and the cells in our organism and in basically every single organism, including bacteria, they have ways to detect viral infection. Some of these ways are based on direct detection of the virus, usually by detecting uh, some, somewhat uh, uh, the viral nucleic acid, because uh, you know, all viruses have some type of nucleic acid as a genome, and this genome will then activate uh, some uh, innate immune sensors in cells to tell cells that there is something wrong. And then these cells will activate this innate immune response that's very important in the beginning to try to contain the virus as well as to signal to the organism that there is an infection so that the organisms can activate other more systemic effectors. So in the case of CD4 T cells, uh, these are the, the main components of the adaptive immune system of vertebrates. And you know, after the innate immune system in vertebrates detects the virus, it basically signals to, to, the, uh, to the adaptive immune system to mediate the activation of the adaptive immune system so that the adaptive immune system can then create the systemic and strong response to really uh, eradicate the virus from the, the organism. Overall, I understand the concepts of what you're saying, but what about a step-by-step -step mechanism? Has that ever been looked into or elucidated at all? Yeah, well, so we can talk about what happens uh, in, in, in my model study now, which are mosquitoes, for example. Okay. So I, I now work with Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, uh, which are the major vectors for virus that infect humans and animals. So they are the vectors that, that transmit dengue virus or Zika virus or chikungunya, all these virus. And these vectors, they, ha they are infected by the virus as well. So these viruses are very unique in that they replicate in the mosquito and then they replicate in the, the human host, and then vice, they, they are transmitted between the two hosts. 
And in the mosquito, the virus, as well as in the human, the virus has to be recognized. And in terms of every step, what happens in, in the mosquito cell is that the cell is infected by uh, dengue virus, for example. And the virus uh, has to, inside the cell, assemble what we call a viral factory. So it's a separate uh, compartment of the cell that is created by the virus by manipulating the cell to basically uh, make more viral particles. And this, vi uh, this viral factor is not normally found, obviously, in, in non-infected cells. So it's a really a real disruption of the uh, physiology of the cell. And one of the characteristics of uh, a lot of RNA viruses is that during their replication, since they have an RNA genome, different from most organisms that have DNA genome, they need to replicate RNA. So they make uh, copies of their RNA. And to make a copy of the RNA, you, you need two strands, right? The same way our DNA is replicated, our DNA is double-stranded. So each strand is copied. So you generate two strands that are identical. But the virus only has one RNA. So, uh, you know, in the case of dengue virus, there's a positive stranded RNA. So it has to make a negative stranded RNA to then use this as a template to make more positive stranded RNA. And what happens in this case is that you generate double-stranded RNA because every time you copy one strand of RNA into the, the corresponding complementary uh, strand, you generate double-stranded RNA. And double-stranded RNA is a very powerful uh, stimulus to the innate immune system. So in infected cells in the mosquito, this double-stranded RNA, RNA accumulates and it's recognized by a, a, an RNA helicase that's called DICE2. So DICE2 uh, binds double-stranded RNAs and it processes these double-stranded RNAs into small interfering RNAs. And these small interfering RNAs are the ones that will mediate uh, uh, silencing of the virus. So they will attack viral sequences once these are produced in order to make more viral protein. So right, quick, quick, this, quick question here. How does the mosquito's uh, body know that a given cell has double-stranded RNA in it? Does it does the so cell inside, like, express inside, it on its membrane, or how does it know? Inside the, inside the cell, there are these sensors. And the major sensor uh, that I mentioned is called DICE2 in this case. So it's an RNA helicase that's basically floating inside the, the cytoplasm of these cells. Uh, and it has higher high affinity for double-stranded RNA. So whenever this RNA helicase finds double-stranded RNA in the cell, it will create signals to the cell that it is infected, right? The major signal is the generation of these small interfering RNAs derived from the virus. Um, in mammals... So, well, quick question. Does that cell then communicate using extracellular vesicles to the rest of the mosquito's body saying, help me? I've got this virus yeah. inside of me, or how do you think it goes from there? So this is a bit more controversial in mosquitoes. Um, if actually this uh, cell intrinsic response is communicated systemically, um, what is certain is that the infected cell um, activates uh, clearly a stress response due to the infection, and then it produces cytokines. There are these protein mediators that will be secreted and will... Uh, uh, tell other cells that there is something wrong. Uh, in the case of mammals, it's very clear how this happens. So an infected cell will produce uh, 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 cytokines called uh, type 1 interference. And these type 1 interference are cl classically produced by virus-infected cells, and they alert uh, uh, neighboring uh, cells as well as the, the whole system that there is a viral infection. So the, the cells that are not infected by our surrounding and infected cell 
will create an antivirus state in a way that they will be not the, at the best moment to receive the virus in order to contain the infection. Okay, so, so question here, yeah. how do in, so in mammals then, how does a cell notify other cells? Is it through extracellular vesicles or tunneling nanotubes or, you know, what's that mechanism? And then the other cells that are alerted, what is their mechanism now to fend off the virus? Do they change their membrane structure? Do they close off, you know, entry to the membrane somehow? Like what, what happens here? Yeah. So, yeah, there are, there are many mechanisms uh, you are touching upon the, you know, really the, the, the core question of, you know, how, how does antiviral immunity works in, in every layer, right? And in the case of mammals, uh, I, I started my career in mammals, but I now work on mosquitoes. But we don't know a lot in mosquitoes. So a lot of the examples I have to give you are from mammals. In case of mammals, how there might be some extra cellular vesicles or nanotubes, but we know the major way they communicate is by uh, producing soluble factors. So they produce proteins that we call cytokines. They are secreted from the infected cell and they bind to receptors on neighboring cells or even cells that are far away from the site of infection. So these cells recognize this soluble protein and they know that this soluble protein is produced only when another cell is infected, basically. And so what this uh, uh, recognition of this cytokine means to the cell that's not infected, what's, what's, what changes in the cell, there are many changes. So type 1 interferons are able to induce a few thousands of genes changing completely the, the, the behavior of the cell that has been treated with interference. And uh, some of the consequences are, for example, they can uh, block translation. Um, the idea of downregulating maybe the viral receptor is less clear because, you know, each virus might have different receptors. So it's not a very general antiviral mechanism if you downregulate receptors because you don't know which virus is coming, right? Uh, so in the case of blocking translation, the only thing that viruses really cannot do by themselves is translation. They do, the only thing they don't really have is ribosomes. So they need the cell ribosomes to translate their, their, their RNAs into protein. And if the cell that will be infected blocks translation, the virus cannot grow. You might ask, what about the cell, right? The cell is blocking translation. It will also suffer because it needs to translate its own proteins. Yes, it will also suffer, but the virus, uh, first, the virus tends to be more sensitive to translation inhibition than the cell because the cell might be able to outlast the, the inhibition while the virus, if it cannot translate its proteins quickly after entering a, a new cell, it will basically... Why would there be a... Why would it be time sensitive that the virus needs to, uh, you know, create proteins? Why would, does the cell have internal defenses that would cause it to degrade yeah. the viral so basically, RNA? You know, yeah. yeah. So um, in the case of RNA viruses that we're talking about, so DNA viruses and retroviruses such as HIV, uh, it's a bit different, but you, you can imagine that cells, you don't really find the floating nucleic acids inside the cell. Uh, cells uh, have a lot of uh, nucleases uh, that control the stability of, of nucleic acids inside. And if a virus comes into a cell and it basically uh, delivers its genome to control the cell, it has to somehow translate its protein quickly to form a viral factory that will insulate its replication machinery from the cell. If it cannot translate its own proteins, there's very little it can do. So it will be very susceptible to the mechanisms that the cell has. So where does the, um, the viral RNA or DNA 
go to in a cell? Does it go into the nucleus? Does it float, you think, between the nucleus and the cytoplasm? And are there regions where it's less exposed or more exposed? Yeah, so this is really virus-specific. Um, what, what's Depending on the virus, the nucleic acid can go only to the cytoplasm. Some viruses have a nucleus stage and as well as a cytoplasmic stage, uh, especially DNA viruses. Most of them have to go to the nucleus with the exception, basically, of um, But what's common to all viruses is that they have to create a, a compartment within the cell where they replicate. Even if this compartment can be in the nucleus or it can be in the, in the cytoplasm, but it's a, a compartment that we call viral factory that's insulated from the cells, basically, you know, a cell within the cell so that the, the viral components are protected from the cell. So does the virus seem to typically first infect an immune cell or is there really no correlation when a virus first enters into a host, whether it's mosquito or mammal, does it seem to preferentially infect a certain kind of cell or is it just... Luck of the draw. Yeah, viruses, you know, it's very hard to draw like a common feature for all viruses, you know. Uh, I think it's still very hard to actually group viruses as a single unit, although we, we, we have classifications that try to group all viruses. And so in terms of their tropism, which cells they target and, uh, you know, how they enter the organism, this varies a lot. So a lot of viruses will target any cell. A lot of viruses will have very specific uh, target. Um, so it's very, very hard to draw a single conclusion on this. So the specific viruses that you're looking at right now are in mosquitoes and, and again, what are they? Yeah, so the, my, the focus of my lab uh, these days is on dengue and Zika virus. So these are two flaviviruses, positive-stranded RNA virus, that are transmitted to humans by mosquitoes. So in that way, they have to deal with two issues. They have to grow in mosquitoes and grow in, in humans. And of course, the immune system is not the same. The cells are not the same. So they have to have like maybe two sets of strategies. One set for mosquitoes, one set for... And in terms of the mosquito, so the mosquito acquires the infection when they bite someone that's infected. If you, are, if you have dengue and you have viremia at the time, so virus in the blood, the mosquito will come to, to, to uh, feed on you, to, to, to uh, feed on your blood, because mosquitoes require blood to mature their own eggs, so they feed on blood because of that. So when they feed on someone that's infected, the virus is acquired with the blood meal. And, and when mosquitoes feed, the, the, the blood goes into the mosquito gut, the same as us. They don't have a stomach, but they have a gut that's uh, physiologically see our gut. And in the gut, the, the virus has to get out of the blood and into the mosquito. And the first thing the virus has to do is cross the, 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 the epithelial cells. And the way the, 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 these flaviviruses do it is they infect the epithelial cells. So the first cell that's infected in the mosquito is the epithelial cell in the gut. So dengue and Zika will infect the epithelial cells, replicate in the epithelial cells, and then they will spread into the, the body cavity of the mosquito. So mosquitoes have an open circulatory system. It's different from us. We have vessels. They don't have vessels. They basically have a liquid that, that uh, bathes all, all the uh, organs. And this liquid is called hemolymph. So the, the virus grows into um, grows in epithelial cells and it buds into the body cavity, into the hemolymph of the mosquito. And there, the virus is basically able to reach any organ in the mosquito. 
but it does not go everywhere. It goes mainly to uh, the salivary gland and the brain of the mosquito. So the salivary gland is very important for the, these viruses because in the salivary gland, the virus will replicate. And the next time the mosquito feeds on someone else, on some other human, uh, the mosquito has to salivate before it drinks the blood. So the saliva helps the mosquito uh, stop coagulation and other things that could uh, prevent them from acquiring the blood. So they salivate into the host. And when they salivate, they deliver the virus. So the virus basically has to grow in the gut to infect the mosquito and spread to the salivary gland where it will become um, able to infect the human the next time the mosquito feeds. So here we have a very clear example of tropism. The virus does not grow everywhere. It grows exactly where it needs to grow to be able to transmit, to be transmitted by the mosquito. Right? In, in the so, human? Yeah, go ahead. Just to, to complete, so in the human, it's very different. So in the human, uh, uh, the virus is delivered into the tissue, sometimes into the blood, and it has a preference for mononuclear cells. We still lack a lot of understanding, but it, it has a preference for these uh, mononuclear cells. They are components of the immune system of humans. So macrophages, dendritic cells, and that's where the, the uh, dengue virus preferably target infection. So it has, a, again, a different tropism in the human compared to the mosquito. So it does not grow in the human gut. It does not go in, grow in the human salivary gland, but it grows specifically. Well, in the human, how does it, I mean, why do you think it targets the immune cells and how? I mean, the, the virus is so tiny, the human is so big. How does it possibly find its target? Is that because the immune cells go looking for it? And then what, when they engulf the virus, all of a sudden the virus is inside them and now it takes over? Or what do you think that initial mechanism is for this? Yeah, so what, this is a very interesting observation is that, of course, these cells are the, the primary line of defense that we have in our tissues. So our tissues are full of dendritic cells and macrophages, which are these uh, scavenger cells that basically uh, are in tissues looking for any uh, invading uh, uh, molecule or organism. And so when the virus is delivered, these are the first cells to come to, to the place where the virus is. So you could say it's a good strategy for the virus to target cells that are looking for it. Right, uh, and so this could be could be the reason why um, uh, the virus has been selected to grow in these cells. Um, uh, the other reason is uh, probably these cells are able to move, so it's very easy for the virus to spread. Um, and if you can think about the ultimate objective of a, a successful virus is to grow to high levels, but without killing the host. So if you target specific cells. Um, but you don't grow to very high levels so that you don't kill your host, probably uh, that's the best strategy for the virus to be maintained. So maybe by infecting preferably these mononuclear cells. It's not that the dengue virus does not grow in other cells. It, it can grow in a lot of cells, including fibroblasts. It does have a preference for, for these mononuclear cells. Have you observed that the, um, the viruses mutate you know, in mosquitoes or in people? and move towards a different preferential state of being, you know, becoming more virulent, less virulent, you know, a permanent part of a given host, or, you know, I guess a very rare event would be endogenizing within the host's DNA. Yeah, it's a great, uh, great question. We, we've uh, struggled with some of the ideas of how these viruses appear. So uh, answering your question 
backwards, uh, right? The idea of the, that these viruses could be endogenized. In fact, what the, the evidence we think uh, is more strong is that these viruses that now infect humans were once only mosquito viruses. So a very long time ago, they probably were just persistent infections of mosquitoes. But since mosquitoes feed on humans, you know, by this continuous uh, interaction, at some point, some of these viruses might have acquired the ability to infect uh, two hosts, right? To come from the mosquito and infect humans. And we don't see any examples of viruses that actually went went there and came back, right? They acquired the ability to grow on the two hosts and then started growing back on, on just mosquitoes. But we have uh, f- examples of flaviviruses that are mammalian specific. So it's possible that these came from mosquitoes to humans. And for some time they were, um, they had two hosts, mosquitoes and humans, but then they lost the, mos- the ability to grow in mosquitoes and stayed in humans. So this is the case, for example, of hepatitis C virus. Uh, it's very complex how it, it happened because there was a lot of changes uh, in hepatitis C compared to other flaviviruses, dengue. But this is a possibility. So uh, you know, they, the virus had a, a full, uh, you know, full trip from mosquitoes to arboviruses to human-specific. Well, what if you looked at a million mosquitoes and sequenced a given virus in them? Do you think that you'd see various, you know, big variations, small variations? And, you know, what do you think was the role of this virus in mosquitoes? Do you think it was more virulent to them and killed them? And mm-hmm. it's turned, it's evolved into a state where it's not virulent, but it's just, it uses them as a carrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very interesting. Yeah. You're talking about sequencing a thousand mosquitoes because that's exactly what we are doing right now. We're, we have this large virome project sequencing wild mosquitoes who try to really understand which viruses are circulating in the mosquito and how this may impact the mosquito. And what's surprising for us up to now, we haven't gotten to a thousand yet, but we are on the hundreds, uh, is that we rarely find a mosquito in the wild that does not carry virus. So they often carry virus and often more than one. And uh, we have not found evidence that any of the viruses we find circulating in the mosquito in the wild are actually pathogenic to the level that we can measure. So these viruses seem to be really well adapted to mosquito, not causing any obvious damage to the mosquito, even though some of them are found at very high levels. In, um, and this might be one way by which these viruses uh, could acquire the ability to be transmitted, right? Because if they are at such high levels in the mosquito, uh, they probably are able to jump to another host and eventually acquire the ability to infect this host. But the mosquito itself does not seem to be that affected. So they seem to be very, well, to live in, in equilibrium, in a, in a well-balanced uh, relationship. I don't believe viruses can be referred to as commensals as uh, bacteria can because it's very hard to think about any advantage that a virus can bring to the host. But it's possible that in some of these cases, they are actually to carrying a virus. Well, in us, I mean, viruses supposedly are responsible for placental mammals. I would, you know, I've read that, using Syncton yeah. 1 and Syncton 2. That's what allows yeah. the placenta to form. So that's a yeah. very beneficial uh, thing. But what about in mosquitoes? That, is, there, uh, uh, is there endogenized uh, viral DNA? And have you looked at it? Okay. So, yeah, this is... Uh, when you talked about endogenized, I was thinking more of a, a virus that causing persistent infection. Um, 
but what you mentioned now is really when a viral sequence is co-opted by the host. So really, you become an endogenous viral element, right? You're not the virus anymore, but part of the virus is integrated into the host genome. And clearly, the placenta is a very good example where a viral gene brought something really useful to its host. Uh, in the case of mosquitoes, the mosquitoes carry a lot of endogenous viral elements. Um, it's still a, a very hot debate in the field if these endogenous viral elements actually uh, bring any advantage to the mosquito in terms of you know, giving it a reason to be endogenized. Uh, well, here's, one... your, here's your conundrum, okay? So mm-hmm. I assumed up until now it was the viruses doing that put its RNA or DNA into the host. But you said maybe it's the host that selectively said, hmm, this, this viral DNA is useful. So yeah. if the virus does it, that seems to say the virus has agency and is alive, at least mm-hmm. within the cell. If the host does it, that's a different kind of intelligence, essentially that it knows how to selectively evaluate these viruses, let's say, and take parts of them. Then mm-hmm. why would they take the parts if they weren't useful? So depending yeah. on who is the agent causing this endogenization, you know, unless you think it's random, which I don't think so, but, you know, that, 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 that brings up a bigger question. It's kind of a conundrum there, you know? Yeah, but it's a, exactly what you mentioned. It's, a, you know, to me, of course, you know, philosophically, it does not make sense that the host would acquire viral sequences randomly. But to prove this, we still need a lot of evidence. And the evidence so far that we have is actually against it, is that the the integrations of virus sequences in the mosquito genome, most of them occur uh, randomly, just because, you know, mosquitoes um, have a lot of transposable elements, and most of these integrations are carried out by interaction between viruses and transposable elements. So when a transposable element uh, is, is active and it's jumping and copy itself into the genome, sometimes it makes mistakes and it copies the pieces of the virus, and then it's integrated uh, into the genome together with a piece of the virus. From there, if this piece was useful, you should see a signature, right? We often in evolution, if we see a signature, a positive selection, this tells us if the sequence is useful or not. So there are some signals that some of the virus sequences integrated into the mosquito genome have positive, are under positive selection at least. But what exactly they do is still under debate. So what's, um, so you're going to sequence, like you said, a thousand mosquitoes. I said a million, but that would probably be a, a crazy amount of work. <laughs> but a thousand. <laughs> but what, what, so what else are you trying to figure out about, uh, you know, the mechanisms of, uh, of viruses through mosquitoes? What's your goal, your end goal? Yeah, so our goal is really to try to understand first how virus, uh, how viruses uh, actually circulate in mosquitoes naturally. We are very used to actually thinking about viruses in mosquitoes doing an outbreak of dengue, for example. So we look for dengue in mosquitoes doing an outbreak. Uh, what happens to these mosquitoes when there's no outbreak, for example, or in places where there are no outbreak? Which viruses are circulating? Are there positive interactions between viruses? So are there viruses that affect the ability of the mosquito to transmit other viruses and so on? So are viruses that are co-transmitted? Are there viruses that are species-specific or they are geographically restricted? Um, So basically what we're trying to characterize is a signature of viruses that can tell us about a lot about the biology of the mosquito. And I give you one example 
we found a virus that is present in Aedes aegypti mosquitoes all over the world. And Aedes aegypti mosquitoes, they originated in Africa. So they're still the native population of Aedes aegypti in Africa these days. But uh, uh, Aedes aegypti was really able to disseminate throughout the world, especially with uh, the slave trafficking from Africa. The slave trafficking allowed the mosquito to spread throughout the world. And uh, in the past decades, uh, the globalization we had really uh, boomed all the dissemination of these mosquitoes. And they are really well adapted to our way of life. So they really like urban areas. They somewhat like pollution. They like humans a lot. So they love our blood. So the fact that we have high, uh, high concentration of humans in a small urban area with uh, a lot of pollution uh, can help a lot these mosquitoes. And so they're really spread throughout the world. But because they only started spreading maybe 500 years ago, sometimes it's very hard to find strong genetic differences between mosquito populations. But viruses mutate much faster. And you can imagine if the original population that spread from Africa already carried a virus, and then this population was spreading and spreading and spreading, the virus within the mosquito would be mutating faster than the mosquito and it could tell us a lot more about how the populations of mosquitoes disseminated if we look at the population of virus within the mosquito instead of looking at the genetics of the mosquito. So that's what we've been trying to do with some of these viruses that seem to be present everywhere. And they could tell us how related different populations of mosquitoes are if we tell how related the viruses within the mosquitoes in each population are related. When mosquitoes uh, bite people and give them, let's say, dengue fever, um, do more mosquitoes bite the people and then get the dengue fever back, you know, or the, the virus back? Does it come back into the mosquito ever? Yeah, so it's a cycle, right? So the mosquito has to acquire the virus from the human, and then the human has to pass it to a mosquito and so on. Otherwise, if you break the cycle, that's actually one of the strategies we work on is to try to break the cycle. If you block the infection of humans or if you block the infection of mosquitoes, the virus should disappear. So it cannot, the virus cannot survive in a single host, at least not dengue virus with a Zika virus. Well, what about when mosquitoes breed? Does the virus transmit, is it, is it heritable, you know, separately or in conjunction with, uh, you know, the mosquito's own, uh, you know, own, own, own cells? Yeah, so the, the virus, uh, dengue virus, seems to be transmitted from mosquito to mosquito. It has, it has the ability to be transmitted from mosquito to mosquito, mostly vertically. So a, a pregnant female can uh, lay eggs that eventually will hatch into mosquitoes that are infected with dengue. But the rate that it, this happens in nature is so low that it would not be able to maintain the virus. So there must be new infections coming from infected humans, right? So these viruses sure. cannot be maintained just by mosquito to mosquito transmission. How do we how do we know that though? We know that because you can do it in the lab, right? So if we bring mosquitoes in the lab and we try to maintain the infection in the colony uh, without providing de novo infection, uh, you cannot maintain. So the the rate mm, okay. is so low that it will disappear. Do mosquitoes preferentially seem to bite people or are attracted to the blood of people that are already infected with dengue? You know, and, well, that, and, a, and yeah. a mosquito that has it versus doesn't have it, are they, diff- you know, differentially attracted? Uh-huh. Yeah, that, you know, these are very exciting ideas, and I think a lot of people have been trying to prove them. Uh, I have to say I, I don't think there is any strong evidence either way. There are some papers saying that... Um, Mosquitoes that are infected tend to be more um, 
avid for human blood. So they would be more active and thus bite more. But the data is not very strong. Um, re regarding the infected human being more attractive, there's not really a lot of studies on that. And uh, what I can tell you is that the, the percentage of mosquitoes that actually are infected in the field is very small. So if you look at an area where you're having dengue, active dengue transmission, only 2% of mosquitoes actually carry dengue. So you would think that if only two, all of them are feeding on blood, right? So if only 2% are carrying the virus, it means that not a lot of them are actually searching infected humans, even in an area where you have a lot of... Well, they're not searching them, but, you know, they're just, they're just trying to bite whoever they could bite, I guess. So... Mm -hmm. It, it seems like important if someone has dengue fever, if you want to reduce the spread of it, is to put them under mosquito netting and make sure that they don't get bitten by other mosquitoes to keep transmitting it. Yeah, is that a strategy? Yeah. It's, unfortunately for dengue and uh, these viruses transmitted by mosquitoes, the mosquito Aedes aegypti has daily habit. So, you know, the mosquito net works really well for mosquitoes that have a nocturnal habit because then you sleep under a bed net. But if you are working during the day, it's very hard to actually work under a net, right? If you could, of course, this would be a great strategy. And of course, for people that are sick, you could put them onto a bed net. But then we come to the major problem is that probably 75% of infected humans are asymptomatic. So they... they carry the virus, and you won't know they are infected. I see what you mean. Okay. Well, very good. Um, Joao, it's been a great call. I don't mean to uh, question oh, you to you. death, but uh, a very fascinating subject. So what's um, last question for you. What's next over the next year, maybe five years? What do you think that you're close to figuring out? So actually, we're very excited now because we think we understand uh, how mosquitoes control uh, dengue infection, uh, some of the mechanisms. And we now want really to try to run semi-field tests, really under more natural conditions, uh, figure out if the changes we make in the mosquito uh, using just CRISPR uh, make them more resistant. And if this is true, also under natural conditions. So that in the near future, if this is true in semi-natural conditions, we would be able to probably change natural populations of mosquitoes and make them resistant to dengue and Zika. And by doing that, we would be able to really, as I said, break the transmission cycle and eliminate these viruses like dengue and Zika. So I think this is a very exciting point of, of, of uh, our research because we have good candidates to try and we probably will have the means to test this in semi-field conditions very soon. Very good. And Joao, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Well, they can go to um, the website, my lab website, um, or also search on, on Google Scholar. So they can search just the laboratory of RNA interference and they will find my lab on Google. Okay. Uh, or just search me on uh, at Google Scholar and the links will be there as well. Very good. Okay. Well, Joel, thanks and for they, coming. Of course, uh, uh, through the yeah, website, they can also get in touch with me. Yeah, and the, and the website is what? The website is uh, sites.icb.ufmg.br slash labrnai slash. Okay, very good. Joel, thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. 
If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.